This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum, welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, I am super excited to be introducing the last part of the corridor that I had with Danny. It was, even we recorded this perhaps a month and a bit ago, but even now just thinking back to that conversation, it honestly was just so magical. It felt like I got sucked into this um this portal, this time zone where time isn't even a thing. Um, and it was just me, Danny, and really getting, um, stuck into the conversation to the point where I almost forgot that there was the mic there and that we were recording. Um, but it was just so insightful and so, um, transformational. So I, yeah, like the golden nuggets that are about to hit you with this episode, y'all aren't even ready. I would 100% recommend having, you know, whatever tools you like to use to jot down notes and insights um, nearby for this one because, boy, your cranium is going to be heavy with all the good stuff after listening to this. Um, so with this last part of the corridor, um, we you know, keep the um, conversation going around um, TTDT education and the movement in general. Um, we really hone in on the relational aspect of it and, you know, specifically what it's meant having many generations of this co-papa, you know, the, the wisdom and the knowledge that has been shared um, and how that's contributed to how the co-papa has changed um, over the years and, um it is really, really interesting thinking about it from that relational aspect as well. Um, and during this part of the corridor, the Matiki, Matiki Mai report is brought up. And I know it has been brought up in other episodes previously. And, um, I ha- actually, it's just dawned on me that I haven't spent the time kind of speaking to the report, you know, um, what it is and, and the background behind it, that kind of thing. Um, and I would like to do that now, especially if you're tuning into the episode and you're like, oh, what is this report? I haven't really heard of it. So um, the report was um, launched on Waitangi Day in 2016, which I think is quite a monumental day considering what the report is about. So the report is was um, produced by an independent working group. And in this working group, you know, there were you know, there were professors, constitutional experts, and respected Maori leaders involved. So you know people with um, knowledge and wisdom and the mana to kind of speak to or to research um, what it looks like and what it means to have a constitutional transformation where the values are um, uh, embedded in. Our Māori and how do we um, protect Indigenous rights and so this report um, was the product of many many years of 
Koriro captured across the Motu, um, and making sure, um, Māori were consulted. And, uh, there was even, uh, like a wee offshoot to the working group, which specifically focused on capturing the voices and thoughts of young Māori people, um, in Aotearoa. And, um, all of these insights and conversations, um, led to, uh, report of about 120 or 130 pages and part of the report includes um oh well the report includes the um background of of you know how this working group got together um but also the key insights from the conversations um and then also it kind of wraps up with recommendations um for furthering this constitutional transformation um, and, and the steps that we kind of need to take to get there and what kind of conversations need to be had and who needs to be involved in these conversations. Um, so it's a really fundamental document and, you know, something that I think will be, that is hugely important to um our race relations in this country and, and to have a document like this, I think is a really, is a, is a blessing and an honor and a privilege. So when we talk about the Matiki Mai report, this is, uh, this is what we're talking about, but I, I would a hundred percent recommend um, going out and, and reading the report and kind of digesting it on your own um, as well, because, you know, it will bring up something different for everyone. Um, and what you kind of pick from it depends on where you are in your journey. So um, I would a hundred percent recommend going out and reading that on your own. So we kind of talk about uh, that and then we move into um the the structures of a social movement and um you can hear it in the recording like i'm literally stunned um when when danny said this oh my gosh they are so so intelligent but um the way that danny speaks to what is what loosely makes up um a social movement um really gives a lot of food for thought and um I don't want to say like the well there's a a loose um nod to a formula but I don't want to put it take Danny's words and and say it is the formula but um the way that um Danny looks at what makes up a social movement and uh, the aspects that kind of go into it is so, so transformational. And then now, now that I have this in my mind, you can, you can see it and you can see that, um, resist like for me personally what I've especially noticed after um Danny framed this um for me is that the resistance or the quote-unquote haters are very much part of the formula and um I hope that no matter what difference we have in our opinions we are always working towards that um synthesis and um so yeah is really, really insightful, but we, we talk about the formula or the loose formula of social movements. And then we get into talking about, um, the role that the university has to play in social movements. Um, and the Korero, um, you know, 
Danny points out that they are part, you know, of the ivory tower. And what does that look like when that knowledge needs to be um, transformed, translated? Um, so it helps the people and it's for the people. Um, and we kind of break down, you know, what we think the role of universities play um, and what responsibilities and obligations universities have. Um, and then we wrap up the conversation on a really, really personal note. And um, I just want to take this time to acknowledge uh, Danny and their vulnerability in this last part because uh, they share something that has been life-changing for them. And, you know, on the show, I'm always so grateful for people's vulnerability and their willingness to kind of share all their, their deep stuff or like the very personal stuff, the heart stuff. Um, and I think it's always, always a privilege that people choose to share their stories in, in this space and acknowledging that this is not the only space that they share their stories. Um, but to share their story in this space where other people are tuning in, I think it's such a privilege and, um, I really am in awe of Danny for sharing this very life changing, um, very, yeah, very much life changing uh, moment of theirs um, on the show, and uh, you know we we talk we, we talk about the tension or the difference distinction between self interest versus selfishness, and I think where this um, topic came from was you know we were kind of talking about well what kind of investment do you need to have to be committed to be an ally to be you know on this journey um, and you know and I you know I've always said on the show that you know you really need to embrace those the ugly things, you know, the, the selfishness, the guilt, the fragility, like all of these hard things that, um, it's easy to run away from, to ignore, to deny, um, to not want to push through. And I get it because they're not easy emotions. Um, and I think the way that as a society, we frame them. It doesn't make it an open invitation to talk about these things as well. But, um, the way I think specifically the way that we talk about selfishness and frame it as a negative thing, the conversation that uh, I have with Danny, um, the way that it's framed, it really just makes it a safe and comfortable place to be like, okay, selfishness is part of this journey. And, and um, how do I, process that and um Danny she is a very um life-changing moment for them and helping and and providing their story as a way to um help reframe that intersection of self-interest um versus selfishness and um and it's so easy to talk about these things, right? But to talk about them with someone kind of unpacking their story alongside it, 
I think just makes it even more real. You've got something to hold on to. You can understand how it's impacted that person. And I think that's why storytelling is just so important because it helps, um, you know, theories and like big words and all these other things come to life because not only do we need to connect with information on an intellectual level I think the wisdom and the heart of it doesn't come until you really connect with it at a heart soul level as well like to connect with it intellectually that's amazing and that's important um but I think to connect with it on that other level that's where the change comes from because that's when people realize actually this is how I've processed it this is what it means to me um this is you know the value that I'm going to assign to it and this is the behavior that I'm going to assign to it too and you know sometimes knowledge itself can do that but I feel like we need something deeper um to facilitate that and that's where storytelling is so important so um please enjoy the episode ahead um grab a cup of tea grab whatever um tools you use to um jot down notes and enjoy the episode ahead um we talk about a lot (laughs) and um really insightful stuff so Please enjoy the last part of this corridor with Danny and catch you for the next episode. Um, like the Maori nation and the Pakeha nation, at least and now, of course, we've got more complicated things on our side um, with more ethnic diversity to account for and multiculturalism to account for. Um, but these ideas have been rejuvenated considerably by Matike Mai Aotearoa. So that was one big change that's happened in our environment. So I'm really curious to see how people have been incorporating Matike Mai into their um, into their work. And what I've seen so far on that front is that um, a lot of like workshops and stuff will be you know history of colonization. Here's the things and why it sucks, um, but here's one of the solutions and the directions that we can head towards. So it's provided like a direction, not just mm-hmm. a um, grievance. <laughs> And I'm sure that like before Matike Mai, because you know I wasn't really involved in this kind of movement space before 2016, um, so I'm not I can't really speak to what it was like before in terms of actual visions for the future, aside from general what would it look like if we on Tetariti. But now there's like a, a more defined program for getting there in a way. Um, yeah, it sounds like this. It's a bit more texturized, and there's something to hold. Yeah, to. yeah. So I'm curious to see. I, I, so I've seen a little bit of that so far in my in my field work. Um, um, how that's being incorporated, and that's kind of what I'm starting to see is that it's had an it's had an impact because it's providing a clear direction. Um, so, we'll see, so what I'll start to find through interviews, I hope, is that how people have been grappling with that, and how like the people they're trying to do these workshops with are receiving that as well, and how that's affecting, you know, that action reflection cycle, um, and how you know it's being incorporated. So that's one thing that's a big change that I'm curious about. Um, the other ones. Um, I've also heard quite often now that, like, where we're at now with treaty education, um, as a Pākehā nation, I'll only speak to that, um, is that there's a general, like, warmer embrace of of Māori things in general. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a couple of decades ago, a woman got in heaps of trouble for um, being in a call centre and answering with Kelda. And now your flight attendant on Air New Zealand will open with Kelda, right? Like, everyone does it. 
well, not everybody, right? No, we wouldn't need any. Um, but it's become a lot more accepted. It's become a lot more accepted. You also see, um, you know, with the national anthem, there was a big controversy because one year, oh, I've forgotten her name now, um, but she sang it in Te Reo Māori first and then in English, and now that's become the norm, right? Um, te Reo Māori itself has become so much more mainstreamed. Um, for better and for worse, because, you know, there's a whole separate conversation we could have about how, you know, Pākehā are going into the Wānanga and kind of colonising the reo now. Um, yes, I have heard so this a, of yeah. conversation. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that's a tangent. I don't, um, there's other people who could speak to it better than me, um, but it's a thing. It's happening as well. Um, but at the same time, that's reflective of there's this big sort of attitude change. Um, but what I've been hearing so far and um, from the people I've recruited from my research is that there's still a knowledge deficit. Mm. These, these really 100-level sort of treaty workshops where they explain what the treaty is. You know, I was saying, like, before, some people don't think that... Um, didn't know the treaty existed before treaty workshops started popping up in mid-20th century, right? Like, there was, that was a state of being for many people. Um, there's still a knowledge deficit. Maybe not that the treaty exists, but around um, those larger issues that we talked about, around seeing relationally, around um, developing those social skills to just have some basic human empathy when you know you've got filters of whiteness trying to prevent that. Mm. Um, so there's all these different, um, yeah, factors that um, I'm really interested in seeing how Tariti education is responding to these shifts. Because it sounds like you know we still have to do those basics around you know um, you know there is a cultural shift. There's more acceptance. That's interesting. That's maybe not a bad thing. I mean, it is if it's colonizing the real. But like overall, um, you know, there's less there's less overt hostility um, from Pakeha. There's a bit of an understanding that Maori should be able to do their own thing. It's probably not a bad thing um, that that shift has happened. But we need to be careful about how whiteness is trying to reassert itself in that process. Um, and that's why we need Tiriti education still. That's why to be able to focus on, yeah, the seeing relation, the social skills of basic human empathy. That has not does not seem to have changed. Again, I'm still quite early in my fieldwork, but <laughs> um, those are some of the trends I'm starting to see so far. Um, what are the big changes? The, the, the history edge curriculum. You know, now we're now going to be teaching about the New Zealand wars as a compulsory thing in New Zealand schools. Um, you know, that signals... A general acceptance of oh yeah colonization happened and maybe it actually sucked mm. <laughs> rather than the state propaganda that's been going on for a century and a half um, so, uh, that says you know we've got the best race relations in the world and oh this was a disagreement but um, it was dignified and everybody got on no you slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> you know like there's a there's a um, there's a there's a reckoning there's definitely lots of people and lots of movements. Um, in the education sector struggling to make that reckoning happen um, how it'll play out given that they're now uh, making contact with the colonial state and getting concessions those concessions are going to have conditions yeah. right um, so yeah so I think that's also like a way of thinking about social movements in the west as well is that there's always like the movement but the, the movement will always have opposition people resisting the change it's trying to create yeah um and that's not necessarily like a hostile conflict um or i've had to think about it that way because a lot of um of indigenous theorists don't think about it as a conflict necessarily um or i'm framing this again really badly um, no, no, I think I understand like, what you're trying to say, though. Uh, because that, that hostility is like a they're-not-like-us kind of approach. 
um, which is a very white way of thinking, <laughs> mm. um, where it's like we need to find the connections in order to sort of um, resolve the contradictions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there is a bit of Western thought, like Marxist thought, loves to think in those terms that, um, though they, they uh, or even uh, Marx and his predecessor Hegel, they call it a dialectic, where you've got this thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you've got this force that's opposing thesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So the thesis, so in this case, let's let's talk about the social movement as the thesis. It's trying to say, we need to change this. The antithesis is the opposition. They say, no, we don't. And and the synthesis is what happens when those two contradictions kind of resolve somehow. Would you you say that would be like the not that you can put social change into a formula, but if there were to be a formula, would you say it would kind of look a little bit like that? Yeah, because it's like you won't... A movement will have a, a, um, a vision for what needs to happen, right? Um, and, you know, far-right movements not necessarily like want change, they want to preserve a status quo of some kind as well. So it's not necessarily a, a positive force um, or a good force. You need to moralize it a bit more. Um, but there's still a vision for doing something, like preserving the status quo or causing a change. Um, that's never That change is n- almost never going to be um, fully achieved by itself because, again, that's thinking of the movement as an in- almost as an individual part of society rather than, uh, or an individual like on its own, rather than as part of a society where there are other people with conflicting views and um, um, the ability to push back against that change. So... You know, the, the, the vision, um, at least when you're thinking of social movements as these things that happened over a few decades and stuff, like um, I wouldn't call decolonization a movement because, uh, or, or a social movement in the Western sense, because decolonization is like the West and things that are outside the scope of the West. Uh, I hear you. So, so when I think of like social movements achieving their like the changes they're seeking, or at least with that with an asterisk there, um, it's usually after a couple of decades of struggling against their opponents and their opponents gradually conceding things. So, um, an example of that would be um, environmental movements, um, which kind of cropped up in the mid twentieth century, um, getting concessions eventually, like a ministry for the environment and these government institutions that actually care about these things, mm-hmm. um, which. Um, so movements are always kind of temporary in that sense. You know, you, once you start getting things that will help facilitate that change and institutionalize it a little bit more, um, the movement energy starts to um, dissipate. Well, the environment movement is a terrible example of that because the movement hasn't dissipated. Um, it's taken on a new form, though. Um, you know, it's not about fighting to get the government to recognize that we should care about the environment. It's because um, now there's at least lip service for that coming from a ministry for the environment. Now it's the school strike for climate, right? That's a yeah. different way entirely about you know, and that's a specific movement call for like decarbonization and ending fossil fuels, um, and um, those are much greater focus than maybe previous movements. Um, and that's how the movement keeps going as it finds a new focus, or it just dissolves, it dissipates because mm-hmm. movements need to move, they need to go somewhere. It's um, true. It is. Yeah. It's in the name. Yeah. Yeah. So once you get an inst- once you're institutionalized, it, you know you're stuck in place. So a movement that often that's the, often been the pattern. Um, so you, you know we could get a ministry for women. The Green Party right now I think is still pushing for a ministry for like rainbow people, um, or you know, that's what Wellington prefers to call the queer community. I have mm. I have other opinions, but um, the um, 
they like uh, you know so, but those could be seen as you know they are goals and they're, and they're and to some extent they're worthwhile goals but they're still debatable goals because mm. um, then you know and I don't think a movement should continue just for the sake of continuing um, there needs to be a purpose in that focus there needs to be a purpose and a focus exactly um, otherwise a movement will just dissipate and not achieve anything at all so yeah so those are kind of the the, the tensions and I guess um, yeah, so I'm looking at kind of how the how. Another interesting thing about the Tiriti education movement is just how intergenerational it's been. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, the environmental mm-hmm. movement has definitely um, had had an interesting sort of sort of lifespan, right? Where it just keeps getting you know the climate crisis keeps exacerbating. So you know movements are responding to that, obviously. To the um, level of the urgency. Hey? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Tiriti education movement has had multiple generations, and so one of those um, activist scholars in the movement from the 2000s that I mentioned earlier, she's really, uh, so that's Jen Margaret, and she's been really keen on framing these generations not as, like, by age, so not by, you know, millennial, zoomer, boomer, gen X, oh, etc. Right, right, right. She's more framing it in terms of um, generations, in terms of maybe, maybe roughly, like, which decade they came into doing Tiriti work. Oh, I see. Which okay, is I not necessarily, in which case, like, age truly is just a number. Yeah, that's true. It has nothing to do with what you So, bought. yeah, so I'm really interested in how those generations have reinterpreted and rejuvenated the movement themselves. Um, while, you know, and you can, and so, so there's, fa- yeah, so there's internal factors like that, as much as there are external factors like Matike Mai, like um, mainstreaming of Tereo and like cultural changes there in schools. Um, I'm also looking. I'm also curious, I suppose, about some of the obvious big world global changes that have happened. We've had the pandemic, you know, and I'm really curious to see how that's affected, you know, TT education practice. Um, and yeah, like like the economic stuff too. You know, we're um, uh, like you know, I keep going into neoliberalism without really defining it or naming it, but just like that that really sort of fiscally conservative everybody everything has to be understood in terms of being part of a market um, approaches that result in things like slashing benefits and um, making people you know make their own money to survive whether or not they actually can um, some people don't have the physical ability to and are now just you know I'm being in the lurch full-time activists can't be full-time activists anymore because that's not producing economic profit that's yeah. even if it is definitely a social good um, so, you know, how have more recent generations of the movement adapted to that economic environment in a way? Because um, previous generations had, you know, more resourcing, either directly from, you know, Network Waitangi getting government funding or indirectly through social welfare to do that work. So it looks a bit, yeah, so it's, it's a different environment and I'm really curious to see how, like, more recent generations of the movement have adapted to that um, as well. So... Um, yeah, and I think these are useful questions for um, a move, like participants in the movement to kind of discuss amongst ourselves. Um, and that's what the resources of the university can help me to facilitate uh, in a way that um, is necessary in our current environment in ways that maybe weren't before the 90s. Mm. Thank you for kind of highlighting the value of institutions. I think when you start talking about all the isms and you start talking <laughs> about systems you really start to see it as, I don't know, even though I'm currently shooting myself, but you do start to be very, very critical of it, very cynical. Um, I don't know, for me, I'm, it's easy to think, well, what value uh, 
do universities bring like all of this knowledge which is amazing kind of stays in this ivory tower and how does it actually get communicated to the people how does it benefit the people but you kind of explaining how what the university has facilitated in the space of um tiriti education um it's kind of gone back to this idea of in relation which i think has been a really big theme in the corridor that we've had for the past wee while like everything mm. is in relation to each other but i think the problem is that we now need to reframe so we can see that relation to each other um as opposed to being in competition mm. um and kind of pursuing our own interests exactly in a way that's like not necessarily thinking about how they relate to others exactly exactly i wish i could keep talking to you forever but <laughs> i will pick just one last question and i i would love to um finish on a more personal note um so you know we've been talking about tiriti education specifically but we've just kind of been talking about social justice movements in general and um to to join a certain kopapa i think a really big part of that is unpacking that relationship between self interest and selfishness mm. and um i was wondering if you could help me tease out that relationship between self-interest and selfishness um and if you have any stories to kind of share that tension i think that would be a really interesting way of kind of wrapping up this corridor because i hope <laughs> um for for people who are tuning into this that's kind of fired up this this um fire to get involved and to figure out what all of these big concepts that we've been talking about means to you as an individual but whenever you kind of enter a certain kopapa i think it's really important to unpack that relationship between self-interest and selfishness because if you don't developing empathy as a social skill i think will look different mm totally um yeah i actually saw oh i wish i saved it but i saw a um a post online a couple days ago even that like was basically saying even when you're you know doing stuff for other people you to to an extent you are doing it out of your own self-interest because it makes you feel good because it feels good to help other people to be in relation with other people um and so like it's impossible to remove self-interest and be just totally altruistic um first of all so I, I, that was that was a cool new way of thinking about it for me um but there's a big difference between that self-interest and selfishness um so uh one of the um my kind of activist colleagues in the Tiriti education group that I'm part of um she frames selfishness as by like kind of what you would expect it to be just sort of fuck everyone else a minute for myself yada yada um <clears throat> whereas uh she frames self-interest as being quite different from that um the way she taught it to me and the way that we t- teach it in um our work is that it's kind of what powers real solidarity um self-interest doesn't come from an individualist frame of mind but from recognition that your own well-being your own self-interest um is is bound up with that of other people um so like that example I just gave right before where like it's actually impossible to help other people and not have that being your own self-interest to some extent you can't completely separate those things um and i think that's really telling because uh, self what defines self-interest versus selfishness is that it's a it's almost like a way of recognizing how the collective is good for you 
um, which yeah, which is a, a very new idea um, in sort of Western and white spaces for sure, or a new old idea because you know the West. Mm, yeah, new old. <laughs> the West is uh, 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 historically speaking, in terms of you know fifty thousand years of human civilization, and the West is an idea and everything that flows from that, the Enlightenment, white supremacy, capitalism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. 500 years out of 50,000 is pretty small. Mm, um, you know, part of the reason that we've survived as a species so long is this more collective conceptualizing of self-interest. Um, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. No one is free until all of us are free. That's kind of what the those kind of phrases boil down to. What they mean is that your self-interest is bound up with that of the people around you. Um, and when they're thriving, you're thriving. And don't listen to the racists and the capitalists who try to make it a competition. <laughs> There's everything about all of these systems. It is about putting up divisions. It is about everyone being put in positions where they feel like they have to compete with each other. Mm-hmm. You're so right. I think we've forgotten about that sense of collectivism along the way. Yeah. And you can see how that collectivism is hard. It's, it's very hard for it to thrive. When we're with the, how our current systems are set up, um, but I was kind of wondering how if you have any stories mm. about how this um, selfishness versus self-interest has like shown up in your in your life. Yeah, um, I think it's. Uh, I hope it. I hope it shines through. I just can't really like identify in a sentence how it. This does constitute like my deepening my understanding of self-interest, but I definitely understand how it's like a shared experience that deepens my empathy um, for colonized peoples because I um, um, preview for the story to come. Like I found um, a colonized heritage within my own family history. Like I'm not calling myself colonized and distinguishing that here because I'm definitely from the colonizer group um, in terms of my life experience, mm-hmm. but my life experience is different from my ancestors' life experiences in, the, in this regard. Um, so, so going back to my involvement in Papa, so that's People Against Prisons Aotearoa before. Um, you know, I was involved in the organization for five years, and um, when I say it in past tense, I need to be really clear that, like, um, I did not leave because I had political or interpersonal disagreements with anybody there. You know, um, I did, and I didn't even burn out. Um, it was more that um, this work actually led me into a different kaupapa, and I was being called yeah. to do my work elsewhere. And um, I was delighted to find that, like, there were people ready to um, receive the torch that I was passing when I moved on. Um, so, um, really, yeah, just proud of that work, but that's, that's another aside. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was a point when it started when, um, when our focus as No Pride in Prisons, before we were Papa, um, was focused on queer and trans issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, you know, was doing, getting involved in the prison stuff because that's what my friends were doing, but there was also, like, that, that queer community um, solidarity happening where like you know I didn't have any experiences with like the with the criminal justice system because you know white and middle class and what have you um, but I could recognize you know as, as, as a non-binary person as a trans person um, how horrifying it would be for my trans sisters especially who are incarcerated to be you know um, uh, just absolutely brutalized in these men's prisons kind of thing um, and you know that was where I could direct activist energies and put, make the world a better place. And you know, that was the opportunity that was there at the time with my sort of very underdeveloped social networks in this country when I just moved back. So I was ready to do that work. 
Um, and I could see the self-interest because of the shared, you know, status. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Listeners, we are in a library room at the moment, and the library is closing in one hour, apparently. Oh my god, um, <laughs> um, I thought it was going to be a fire alarm. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I could see the self-interest, I guess, at that level, and it was, it was, um, there was a, a shared. Um, uh, queerness, I guess. Um, although you know like that's a very loaded term, but it's definitely the one that I prefer to use to describe myself. But um, there was, um, yeah, just that shared experience of being queer or um, LGBTQIA plus Takatapui, um rainbow. Again, is the so I think the preferred nomenclature has seems to be coming in uh, Wellington at least. Um, that I could, you know, see those connections a lot more easily. What happened though is when we, our politics evolved, as as they should, as they do, um, and um, the organisation became People Against Prisons Aotearoa because we were recognising that no one else was doing the kind of work that we were doing, and that all prisoners are actually being subjected to really horrifying shit by leverage of being imprisoned. Um, and so the organisation's scope expanded, um, and so. Um, you know, and so at that point, it was about the prison politics, which again, I had quite a degree of removal from. I had a hard time. You know, I knew it was the right thing to do, um, but I could sense my energy for it not on like a, a work level where I was like burning out, but definitely like on maybe even a spiritual level, or it was just like this is not. You know, I'm I don't feel the pull to do this work. Yeah. Um, and so um, I realized that I couldn't keep going on like that. So I. Um, so Papa was involved in my master's research um, and when I finished that master's I managed to by some stroke of luck be able to afford to take a month off basically of, 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 of work of study of anything um, and in that time I actually sat down and worked through my family history because um, it was like it was something I've been meaning to do for a while um, I always felt like I was going to be moving back to Aotearoa when I, whenever I when, as soon as I could growing up anyway um, and as soon as I did, I was like, why did I need to do that? And all my Maori friends were like, well, do you know if you fuck up a Maori? Because that would explain your connection to this Fino and why you felt pulled back. And I was like, oh, shit, I don't actually know. So I thought, okay, well, it is my you know duty as a Tiriti citizen, one way or another, to understand what my relationship to this land actually is. Mm, that's true, actually. So I did my family history research, um, did not actually find any Maori connections, um, but what I did find instead was this really strong connection to the Gaelic world. Um, so Gaels would be an ethnic. Gael would be an ethnic identity, like we discussed before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be distinct from... And so that's like... So Gaels would be that... Gael would be kind of the ethnicity of, like, the Scottish Highlanders, loosely, and um, the Irish. Um, and Gaelic would be, like, an um, uh, under this umbrella of, sort of, Celt. Okay. Like... Um, Think of how um, Tongans and Samoans and Niueans and so on—they fall under like a Pacifica umbrella. It's a bit like oh, it's a bit okay. like that. Thank you for understanding that because that part of the world I'm not super familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So there's so the so so, so the Celtic umbrella would be like those like different Celtic nations. You got like the um, well, there's only kind of two branches of it, but there's a bunch of different nations. So you've got like the, the Welsh, the Cornish, and the um, Britonic. There, the. Um, the Britonic Celts, um, and then you've got the Goidelic ones, which is the Scottish, the Irish, and the Manx. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I discovered that I had a really, really strong connections to um, Scottish Gaels. Um, I had ancestors who, even after they arrived in Aotearoa, were writing in the diaries bilingually, in English and in Gaelic, which wow. is uh, Scottish Gaelic. Um, and I also discovered their experience of colonization from the same crown that was co- that you know has been was and has been and is colonizing the Maori world. Um, which shook my whole fucking world, <laughs> worldview yeah. and stuff, right? Because it was like, yeah, okay, I know it was, it was, and it was so complex too, right? Because it was like, you know, I've, I know I, by that point, you know, I had enough of a critical consciousness to understand that yes, I'm Pakeha, I'm part of the oppressive group, I'm, you know, I experience whiteness, I'm a colonizer, I'm not the colonized, but my ancestors were. Hang on a sec, we've got to unpack this, we've got to figure out how to do this right because I do not want to be turning this into this victim complex where I'm like, oh, I'm oppressed too on racial grounds because my ancestors were. But what I found through those diaries, which, um, another another shameless plug, but I um, got a a journal article published this year um, analyzing those diaries because what I did is I took them and I said, oh, it took me a couple years to track them down. Um, And in that time I was studying Gaelic because it's my heritage language and I was realizing that hits different. Than like the intellectual exercise of say if I wanted to learn Spanish, which I did in high school um, because most of my soccer team in high school was Latino, so it was useful. Um, but I didn't have a, a like a heritage connection to it. It's not. It wasn't a heritage language. It was an intellectual exercise, a social one, perhaps more accurately. Um, but it wasn't like a spiritual ancestral one, like it kind of is to learn your heritage language. So one of the bits of self interest that I found through this journey then was um, through Gaelic specifically. I learned how, um, you know, maybe how to, when the time comes for me to go to Wananga and maybe and learn some more te reo properly, um, like, um, you know, I could do, I can understand how being Pakeha in that space um, is very different and how, you know, a Maori trying to reclaim their language, um, it hits different for them and how to be more sensitive to that through my mm-hmm. own experience of reclaiming my own heritage language, which is just as endangered. Um, the language. Yeah, I was just about to ask. Is um, like, um, not like a dying language, but it's 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 yeah, you know, down to less than a million speakers at the very least, less than a hundred thousand, as far as I know. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, so it's a, a it's in a very similar state as today Reo Maori, um, and you know has had a similar history of colonization, mm. trying to eradicate it. So, you know, I was like, oh, I found this, this common ground, which again is not about equating it with the Māori experience, but really being able to deepen my understanding of it um, as much as I can from not experiencing it myself. Um, so that was really, really powerful. Um, and then the other thing I did once I tracked down um, his diaries was um, I was able to, what I did with them and the analysis that I got published was um, I traced his assimilation into whiteness. Because oh, in the nineteenth wow. century, Gales in um, I mean by that point, oh, I'm trying not to go down too many rabbit holes here. But um, <laughs> Scottish and Irish, so this so uh, Scottish Gales came from Ireland originally. Like that's the fucker popper. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, 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 the that's you know the connection. Um, but after you know centuries of colonization from the British Empire, and um, you know they started to get treated quite differently. Um, and had very different experiences, but both were still um, racialized in the 19th century. They weren't considered white, they were considered less than white, right? So, um, so what I did with the... But, you know, when, when Neil MacLeod, my great-great-great-grandfather, um, was clear... Was basically... Oh, ah, 
Do it every 15 minutes? God. Yeah, they're giving us reminders. Um, <laughs> they want us out. <laughs> yeah, but so when so when Neil finally left his homeland um, and, and the Isle of Razi in the Scottish Hebrides, um, he you know he came here and he had a chance because of becoming a colonizer, it sort of redrew the, the battle lines in a way. Um, he was now on a different side of um, colonization. <laughs> and so... Um, I trace through the diaries how his removal from his place of belonging, um, his culture, his language, his people, all these things, um, and replacing them effectively with this blank slate. There's this new land, like where the you know the the, the place-based knowledge of his people and his culture and his traditions isn't really relevant in a place that he doesn't have an ancestral connection to. Um, so I trace how, like you know, that suddenly that. Um, you know, English became the community language, not Gaelic. So, you know, it became his, you know, his primary language, if not his first. Um, and how that changed the way he would think, because when I looked at the Gaelic passages in his diaries versus the English ones, the way that the, the things they were talking about were very different, um, and, and for for a lot of different reasons. Um, and yeah, like it just it was so interesting how in the Gaelic passages it was all about. Um, women, first of all, you know, because yeah. and, and the diaspora, um, he could, you know, there was a lang- he could use Gaelic as a language barrier, and that was its primary use now to um, to sort of shield his innermost thoughts. Like, his, but they're also like ones that are kind of more reflective of his cultural identity, I suppose. Um, but over time, he was writing in Gaelic less and less and less. Oh, that's sad. And um, and just how. Um, yeah, so what I did was I just kind of traced between that and like just getting into the specifics of what he was writing about and how he was writing about it in both languages, um, kind of detailed how he was slowly being assimilated into whiteness because, yeah, by the early 20th century, um, you know, Gales were basically considered white, um, both here and like, you know, in the United States, even though it took to like... Uh, was Kennedy a president in the 60s, I think? Um, I'm not too sure. sure. He was the first Irish-American president. Ooh, wow. Um, The first Catholic president. Ooh, wow. Um, So, like, that was, um, you know, so that was actually a a, a sort of interesting side journey where um, Gales, you know, were racialized. And that's not to say that I'm not white now, but I had ancestors who weren't. Um, (laughs) And so having to reflect on that was another powerful, like, lesson and self-interest because I was able to see how, um, you know, I had been deprived of my heritage language, you know, up until the point where I finally was able to access these diaries and analyze them, I had learned through studying Gaelic, um, Gaelic, um, how, you know, it is different to learn your heritage language. Absolutely. And, and so, so it gave me an appreciation of what I had lost and through Neil's diaries, I was able to see how it had been lost and through that identifying as well, like, um, self-interest being uh, in that and being able to preserve this in crucial part of my heritage to um, to the to all struggles against colonization and um, you know not just language as, a, as one issue amongst many that colonization uh, um, causes <laughs> um, but in understanding how you know I can see how my own self-interest in you know that kaupapa of preserving this language and revitalizing it um, and making it a part of my ability to understand and relate to um, similar struggles in the Maori world was how that self-interest became a collective exercise. Mm. 
Oh my gosh, sorry. The reason why I said before, it's so sad. It's just it must have been so sad for you to read through the diaries and just see assimilation over time. Mm. Like, through your ancestors direct yeah. words you know yeah. like that oh, was, and it was his diary <laughs> and it was so there was a point where it was particularly intense because one of the passages that I spend the most time with in my journal article and I have spent the most time with period because it was so fucking fascinating was that he was uh, there was a point where he was aware of it of his own assimilation oh, no. he was self-aware about the fact that he was becoming more and more like these these Anglo Pakeha that he despised because <laughs> the other thing he does a lot in Gaelic is he whinges about them because <laughs> the language barrier right um, but he also <laughs> but he also concedes in Gaelic that he's becoming more and more like them day by day wow it that's was so interesting it was fascinating it was upsetting it was mm, perversely I guess inspiring because it was like oh <laughs> that's so telling kind of thing right um, but yeah no so to answer that question of like stories around self-interest like that's where I that was my experience of learning it I suppose that was one of the most powerful things because it wasn't just you know going from individual learn, learning how to see the world individually through you know a white picket fence white middle class upbringing um, discovering community through like queer community when I came out to um, you know, learning how, you know, and that was pretty sort of, it was a university student community, so it was pretty like one generation kind of thing. But then coming here and being exposed to Maori communities, which are very intergenerational, um, and then seeing, you know, discovering through this process how to apply it to my own history, if not my present, um, and how to take those lessons into the present, um, was kind of, yeah, my big journey towards like sort of understanding self interest as solidarity. Um, which, yeah, so that's my that's my own learning, and I guess what how that plays out in the in the professional research space and the PhD and stuff is also understanding you know how do we replicate that for other people for more people in ways that aren't gonna you that whiteness isn't gonna take advantage of and say you're in it for you know make it about ourselves again recenter yeah, Pakeha exactly. in that. Um, it's dangerous. It's really tricky, right? Because, you know, at the, as inseparable as, like, you know, being a solidarity in these struggles are, you know, it is part of our self-interest. Like I said, even at the very minimum, you know, it makes you feel good. <laughs> That's why you would do it kind of thing. Um, and even, you know, to an extent, like grappling with discomfort when you're confronted and you're challenged and that kind of thing. Um, you, you, you know, once you develop a critical consciousness, you can recognize that that's a good thing. You and I have had that discussion earlier, right? Like, we both had those experiences and then reflected and recognized, oh, no, this is important to feel this discomfort. And exactly. at some level, even that's self-interest, right? Because it's like, oh, I recognize how to be better in relation with people. And this confrontation is a valuable learning experience for that. Um, so, yeah, making sure that, um, that, that, that the idea of self-interest is interpreted in that way. And that we figure out ways to defend it against how whiteness could infiltrate that and recenter whiteness and recenter Pakeha in these discussions and, um, you know, make it about Pakeha reclaiming our cultural heritage and somehow separate. I mean, we need to make sure that that's never separated from so that we can better be better treaty citizens. Mm. That's what it's for. It exists for its own sake as well, and it should. Um, but, that could, but it always needs to be, you know, we're not in Scotland. We are not Teorua. So, to, what does that look like here? What does it space? What does it look like here in this space exactly? Oh, oh my God! Thank you so much for being so vulnerable <laughs> and sharing one of the most life changing moments. <laughs> 
here on on the show I feel really honored that you've shared that but mm. by sharing that that is a very powerful exercise of what self-interest looks like in comparison to selfishness and actually not demonizing that and mm. reframing that in a way where it then further helps develop that skill of empathy as a social skill because mm. if we don't set it up in the right way you're so right it can lead to that victimization and I know once you get to that space it's just never really productive conversations that can come from that no. um, so thank you so much for sharing <laughs> that and thank you so much for spending time with me and mm sharing unpacking your research and all of the other big concepts that come with that because i think talk being in the space and talking about all these big things they're really scary big words (laughs) i know i'm so sorry i I try my best to like you know i think one of my responsibilities as an academic in this institution because like i said i'm coming at it first and foremost as a participant in the movements that i'm doing this research with um, but I guess, uh, you know, I'm still in the ivory tower and I have a responsibility to make sure that the way that the ivory tower operates um, can still be done in ways to um, can be brought out of the ivory tower. Like last year, the postgraduates in my school had a conference where it was, that was themed beyond the ivory tower. How do we make sure that our research um, actually like leaves the ivory tower and sees the light of day and um, actually benefits people. And um, yeah, I, I, I was happy to be on the show because I was like, this is a really good um, practice, if nothing else, um, at making sure that, you know, the ideas that I'm and the, and the literature that I'm grappling with is made accessible to people. <laughs> and you've definitely done that. Like even the word, well, for me personally, even the word praxis, it's something that I've probably Googled, like definition <laughs> of praxis so many times, but the way that you described it, I was like, no, I actually have something I can hold on to now. Like, I really have understood that. So thank you so much for breaking down all of these big topics and big words in a way where it's, like, bite-sized <laughs> understand course. it. And then also, the more importantly, the theory or the definition of these big words, you can then um, digest it alongside your personal experience, which I think yeah. where the real wisdom comes from when, mm. when you combine that knowledge with that lived experience. So thank you for making us wiser. No worries. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, no, it's scary telling you like my own stories are part of it as well because it's like, oh, am I making it about myself? Am I like falling into that, that trap of the centering? But what I've been told, um, is, um, I'll never forget the way um, a komatoa in my life framed it, which is that other people will find their story in yours. Absolutely. And it was like, that feels like, you know, makes my story way more important than I feel it should be, maybe, maybe, but, you know, I'm not going to contradict that kind of wisdom from someone like that. Um, So, yeah, I hope it does um, inspire people, (laughs) I guess. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I can never thank you enough. This is, yeah, being powerful conversation. I've learned so much. No worries. Amazing human you are. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.